Join the Temple Emmanuel clergy every week for Talmud class, where Wes, Michelle, Elias, Eliza, and Dan discuss and debate a variety of Jewish issues and make connections between our sacred texts and the realities of our lives. Watch our live stream at 8.30 on Saturday mornings, or listen to the podcast at your convenience, all at templeemmanuel.com. There's a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary named Ray Schindlin, who has a specialty that at first blush may seem, shall we say, a bit dry. His specialty is medieval Hebrew poetry. But I took a class of Rachelin on medieval Hebrew poetry, and we read a book with a title that's anything but dry. Here's the title. It came out in 1986. I still remember it to this day. Wine, Women, and Death, colon, Hebrew Medieval Poetry on the Good Life. Wine, Women, Death, Hebrew Medieval Poetry on the Good Life. And this was just a fascinating book and a fascinating course. Here's what he shows. He, he presents the biography and the poetry of Jewish poets who lived in Spain in the 900s, in the 1000s, the 1100s, the 1200s, the 1300s, and the 1400s, first part of the 1400s. And many of them had a similar kind of bio and struggle. They happened to be mostly very, very affluent. They enjoyed the good life. They had big houses. They liked their big houses. They had pools, swimming pools. They had gardens. They had fountains. And they would have pool parties with wine and the purple tulips are blooming and the Chardonnay is poured and everyone's dressed in their best and they take a swim when they're done with their best dress and they're enjoying the moment and they're just loving it. That's the wine part and the women part. And the death part is, how long do we get to do this for? What about our mortality? We just so love this life. We so love this pool. We so love this garden. We so love this fountain. We so love this wine. We so love this moment. We don't want it to end. Don't want mortality. Wine, women, death. Hebrew medieval poetry and the good life. Now, here's the thing about these poets. They were Spanish, deeply Spanish. They were Jewish, deeply Jewish. They were at home in Spain. They were at home in Judaism, the golden age. But something happened. Something happened to the golden age. In the year 1492, it ended. In the year 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand issued their expulsion decree. And that not only ended one historical era and ushered in a new historical era, it not only ended the golden age of Spain, it ruined the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews. Because before 1492, 
when they were knocking down their Chardonnay and thinking about, I want this to last forever. The premise was you could be Jewish and you could be Spanish, and it all worked. And then in 1492, with the decree, you had to choose. And historians tell us that there were 300,000 Jews in Spain before the decree, 200,000 converted to Catholicism to be able to stay in Spain, and 100,000 did not want to convert to Catholicism, even though they loved Spain. And you know what happened to them? They became refugees. Historical forces were happening. They didn't understand it. They could not control it. All they knew was that they were now on the run. They lost their homes. They lost their lives, the lives they had. They lost their country. It wasn't just, it wasn't right. It wasn't fair. It just was. And there was nothing anybody could do to change it. And there was nothing anybody could do to fix it. Now, here's where the story gets really interesting. Really interesting. What happened to these Spanish Jews who lost the life they knew? Many of them went to this incredibly beautiful and mystical town in northern Israel called Tzfat. Can I see by a show of hands how many of you have been to Tzfat? So you know Tzfat, beautiful, spiritual. And lots of these Spanish Jewish refugees go to Tzfat, and they go carrying questions. They got big time, heavy duty questions like, whoa, what just happened to us? Like, whoa. How do I understand that I lost my homeland and my home? Like, wow, where's God in all this? Like, wow, where is justice and where is agency and what can I do about this? Now, it turns out that the Spanish Jews who went to Tzafat, they happened to have a rabbi who was an amazing rabbi an iconic rabbi, he would change Jewish intellectual thought forever. His name was Isaac Luria, and he died young. He was only 38 years old when he died. His dates are 1534 to 1572. And his teachings would address and engage the deepest questions of these Spanish Jewish refugees who wondered how could their life be upturned like that and there was nothing they could do about it. And he talked to their hearts and their hands and their minds. And his thought became known as Lurianic Kabbalah. Most of us just know Kabbalah, like you go to Israel and somebody gives you a little red Madonna thing to put on your wrist. There's a little more to Kabbalah than that. So Luriana Kabbalah is super complex, super opaque, lots of symbols, lots of symbolism. But there are two core points to Luriana Kabbalah that spoke to these Spanish Jewish refugees in the 1500s, and obviously that speak to us now. Here's the first one. He tackled a question. It's a very interesting question. 
is there such a thing as a trajectory in history? Is there such a thing as an arc? Now, some modern thinkers say there is. The great Dr. Martin Luther King said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And then there's Steven Pinker, who wrote this book in 2011 called The Better Angels of Our, The Nobler Angels of Our Nature, Better Angels of Our Nature, colon, Why Violence Has Been in Decline. And Steven Pinker argues that human society is getting less violent every century as reason and compassion and empathy grow. And what Isaac Luria would say to both of those is, no, no, no. No arc, no trajectory. Instead, Luria says there is a constant battle between good and evil. And every morning that you wake up, there's a cosmic battle between good and evil. There is no arc, there is no trajectory, there's just a constant tension. And he's got all kinds of heavy symbolism, which we don't need to go into. But good versus evil, a cosmic battle is always ongoing. But then here's his second point. His second point is, if you wake up in the morning dispirited by this cosmic battle between good and evil, we need to move you from dispirited to summoned. We need to move you from what can I do to what can I do? And he would go on to author a phrase that we use today without even knowing that he authored it and was talking to this group of people whose lives had been savaged by history. That phrase is tikkun olam, repairing the world. And what he argued is that tikkun olam, repairing the world, it's multilayered. When you do good in the world, it's multilayered. You're doing good for the person before you. And you are radiating goodness into the universe. And there's always going to be evil then and now. But if we all radiate good, then in this cosmic battle, good can be ascendant. Now, I want to bring this down to earth with a single story. And I want to leave you with a single question. The single story is about Paul Farmer. In the week that Russia invaded Ukraine, Paul Farmer died at the age of 62, suddenly and tragically, in a hospital setting that he had inspired and created in rural Rwanda. So this is Paul Farmer on one leg. If you don't know the story, he's just a brilliant guy. He went to Harvard Medical School, except for a lot of the time that he went to Harvard Medical School, he was not actually at Harvard Medical School. He was actually in Haiti, treating the poorest of the poor, and he would fly back to take his exams. And his entire life was devoted to a simple, single, moral proposition that had utter clarity and utterly galvanizing that all human beings on planet Earth are entitled to excellent health care. And that it is not acceptable for poorer people to have poorer outcomes 
because they are poor people living in poorer regions. And he didn't only talk this talk, he walked this walk. He worked in Haiti, he worked in Rwanda, he worked in West Africa, and he built their hospitals and inspired people to give. For example, a famous story of a Bostonian real estate magnate named Thomas White who said, I would love to meet you, Paul Farmer. I'm a big admirer of the work that you do. And Paul Farmer said to Mr. White, I will meet you, I'm happy to meet you on one condition. The meeting has to take place not in Boston, has to take place in Haiti. And Thomas White went to Haiti and met Paul Farmer and ended up giving more than a million dollars. And that's what Paul Farmer did, and that's how he built all these hospitals and universities in the poorest regions of the country. And he walked in these areas, and he would personally administer life-saving medication. And he did this every day until the day he died. Now, the day he died, he died in Rwanda, in this place that he had helped inspire, and he wasn't supposed to be in Rwanda. He was supposed to be in Sierra Leone. The reason that he was in, in, in Rwanda was shared by a colleague of his, Dr. Sriri Shamasander, who was inspired to become a doctor and to work in Rwanda by Paul Farmer. And Dr. Shamasander tells the story that Paul Farmer, in the last week of his life, was treating an adult male in Rwanda who had AIDS, who had late-stage AIDS, who was dying of AIDS. And the fact that this young man was dying of AIDS in the year 2022 was breaking Paul Farmer's heart. He couldn't tolerate this beautiful young man dying of AIDS and he wouldn't leave his bedside, and he kept trying to find therapies, and he kept reaching out to doctors, and he finally came up with a therapy, and this patient who was dying of AIDS responded, and he had been not communicative, and he had been not lucid, and all of a sudden his eyes opened, and he woke up, and he could talk, and it seemed like he could make it, and Paul Farmer said, I'm not going to Sierra Leone. I'm staying in Rwanda. I'm going to see this patient through, and then, alas, the patient passed away. And what happened next is shared by his disciple, Dr. Shamasander. These are his words. During the week I spent in Rwanda, the patient that Paul was following had an unexpected complication and got sicker and sicker. On a WhatsApp thread that many of us taking care of the patient read, Paul turned over and over other therapies that might be given, interventions that should be done, possible transfers to other facilities that might give this patient a fighting chance of living. But the patient died. Paul was devastated. He was heartbroken. I remember thinking, this is why he is Paul Farmer. After 40 years, losing one patient was like losing the whole world. Many of us felt the urge to console him. I told him I could feel his anguish because he loved the patient in a way that we doctors often don't allow ourselves to love. He replied that he had unabashedly loved that dying man and had told him so 
every day. Now that's Paul Farmer. That's not us. But that doesn't let us off the hook. What's our version of that? What's our version of that kind of loving? What's our version of that kind of caring? What's our version of that kind of reaching beyond ourselves to help somebody else? Because one thing is crystal clear. Evil, there will always be. Whether there is also good depends on us. Shabbat shalom.